0: Hi, this is Serenya Nenthapuntala, founder of for a Green Environment, and I want to thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women in Environmental Science. This podcast is to inspire other people and to educate them about the work researchers in environmental science are doing, specifically the issues they face in the industry, the solutions they make, the roadblocks they push through, and most importantly, what they are learning to teach the society to keep the environment clean. Keep listening to hear this episode of Women in Environmental Science. So, hi. Um, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Srinya Nantapandala, and I have Dr. Edith Newton-Wilson with me. Um, thank you so much for coming to my podcast today, Dr. Wilson. Yeah.
1: You are very welcome. It's lovely to be here.
0: Right. Okay. So, um, I've read about your research and your work on like, energy conservation. So, what are you currently working on in your field?
1: Well, I am currently doing several things, both as part of my consulting business and um, as uh, pro bono work. Um, Consulting projects just now, I'm mostly working on some advocacy and communications for a small battery tech startup here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I'm speaking to you from. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple of other small mining clients that I work with doing everything from resource assessment to, again, kind of brand definition and uh, education. And then um, the other piece to my practice is working very closely with a small number of individuals here in Tulsa who are earth scientists and engineers who are interested in making an energy transition of their own and finding work in clean energy projects.
0: That's great. So you have like lots of like experience in like um, the energy field, right?
1: I do, I do. I started my career with 25 years in oil and gas.
0: Right. so
1: it's been a very recent energy transition for me
0: mm-hmm. so what did you like what did, what, what did you learn from your experiences in both like the oil and gas fields and in the energies right now
1: yeah well, I mean they're both the energy business, and mm. I think one of the things that has been incredibly helpful to me um, in recent years has been the definition of sustainable development goal number seven, which is to ensure access to reliable, affordable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, that's exactly what I did for 25 years in the oil and gas business. You know, the the um, fossil fuels business for 30 years has, I mean, for a 100 years, has provided um, uh, more and more efficient and affordable energy for the world. But what's happening now is that we're sort of leapfrogging away from the burning of fossil fuels where solar energy is stored in hydrocarbon molecules and it Mm -hmm. takes not only a lot of cost and energy to get that to, to release that energy, but it also releases pollutants and carbon dioxide, which are bad Uh, for the planet and for human life on the planet. But now we've leapfrogged away from using those fossil fuels to accessing the energy of the sun a lot more directly and efficiently and at lower cost as well as lower carbon. So both energy businesses, but um, both very focused on reducing the impact of energy usage on the environment, and this recent switch to clean energy to renewable energy to green energy is a huge step in the right direction right. for that.
0: Mhm. Yeah. That, that's great. We're um trans we're learning how to transition into um, having a greener future, right? Right. So, yeah, so how was this transition? Was it like very like um I don't know. Uh, just let me know how how was it?
1: Yeah, well that's a very good question because um um, uh, From the perspective of having spent so many decades in oil and gas, most of my thinking was kind of molded by the market research I'd done, the technology I'd used, the geology I had employed. And so when I first began to think about uh, looking to the future, away from fossil fuels and toward clean energy projects, I had to really, first of all, revamp my reading list. I mean, I had to begin to read... Um, uh, market uh, analysis of things like lithium and solar panels and and try to understand the cost drivers behind um, the science that was being developed. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I had to sort of take the blinders off of being in the heartland of the US, working for the oil and gas industry, there's, there's a lot that sort of doesn't reach within those borders. So I think being open to new ideas, being open to different ideas, uh, being able to sort of take a departure from the normal was probably the, the hardest barrier to overcome. But mm-hmm. once I began to look outside of those boxes, um, I discovered that really the rest of the world on a global basis was was running away with, with clean energy projects. Uh, one of the favorite quotes of, of a colleague of mine that I I, I love to uh, share is our reality now is that the world is overrun with with clean energy. And it's more a question of how do we adapt? How do we change the way we do things to take advantage of that?
0: Yeah, that's a really good quote. That kind of defines where we are right now, actually. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, it looks like lots of companies are, like, um, are, are, know that they're um, actually producing more greenhouse gases and they're being able to, like, switch to um, uh, greener energy, right? So, like, um, I've seen, like, um, gas companies, like, um, see, uh, uh, show us, like, media through ads, like, that whatever they're doing with fossil fuels is great. What do you think about that?
1: Well, you know, it it is a time of change and transition. And you have to recognize that um, for a lot of companies and a lot of people, because um, there are, you know, real people at these companies Mm -hmm. doing good jobs, it's really hard to see your livelihood, your way of doing business, um, fade into something that's no longer useful. So we do see a lot of defensiveness and a lot of resistance. And a lot of um, attempts to uh, uh, paint a, a green picture over what is, in essence, um, you know, a very carbon-intensive industry, and that's not only true for oil and gas, but for mm. Um, for other businesses too, um, right. internal combustion engine manufacturing, things like that. Um, and, and what I like to do is, um, I, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm sort of a data junkie. So I like to look a little bit beyond the slick advertisement and look at things like of these, let's take the fossil fuel companies, for example, of these companies that are painting themselves green, so to mm-hmm. speak. Which ones are actually investing in EV charging infrastructure? Which ones are investing in solar technology? Which ones are working in their fossil fuel projects, which continue to provide you know, the plastics that you and I are using in our cell phones and the oil and gas we're probably still using in our cars or our parents' cars anyway? Um, which, which companies are trying to get the most, uh, the lowest carbon barrel out of the ground with the remainder of their fossil fuel production while beginning to expand their portfolio um, in low carbon uh, renewable energy. So I think if you look a little bit deeper than just the advertisements and look at what the companies are actually doing to make the energy transition. Um, and again, this applies to, to Walmart, to Apple, to Microsoft. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Are they doing what they say they're doing and, and what impact is that having on their carbon footprint?
0: Right, so like, what have you learned from um- looking through all that data?
1: Well, I think that um, not surprisingly, there are a number of companies, and I'll speak only to the ones I know well, which is on the fossil fuel side. There are a number of companies who are beginning to diversify dramatically. Um, and not surprisingly, these are more the global multinational companies, the Totals and the Shells and the mm-hmm. VPs and the um, Equinors. And, and those companies are not um, necessarily very far along the road, but they've taken significant steps to move along that road. Um, Now, there are other companies that will naturally sort of fall by the wayside because they are too small or too focused on oil and gas production that they may not have the opportunity uh, to make that leap. Um, But but what I think is is, uh, probably the most important thing I've learned from the research I've done over the past few years is, It's not um, uh, altruism or wanting to save the planet, although all of those things are good, that is driving companies to make these changes. It's not even pressure from investors who are concerned about climate risk and rightly so. It's Mm -hmm. actually commercial drivers. It's actually cheaper and more efficient and more profitable to provide energy through solar and storage and through electric vehicles for transportation than it is to use the old forms of energy. So we have this big economic engine Mm -hmm. driving a transition to what is a better form of energy for for us as humans on the planet. So I, I think that's, to me, that's really exciting because when you have the economic factors and the technology development factors and the um, environmental factors all working in the same direction, then change starts to take place very rapidly.
0: Because there's people who want to save their money, there's people who want to save the environment, and there's people who just want to get what they can um, with the best (laughs) things, right? Exactly, (laughs) exactly.
1: And so, but you have this, this economic imperative pushing business, and pushing energy providers in the right direction, so that's really good
0: that's great i 'm um, actually a little bit curious. Um, I know solar and wind energy are like the, the like one of the best like sources we can get our energy from because they 're clean and everything. but are there any like downsides to these um, sources of energy?
1: Well, I think one of the things that um, maybe some of our early um, uh, Plans and 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 great um, expectations were are a bit naive about is that in the supply chain, for example, for solar with battery backup, so that it's reliable through the night, um, there are carbon-producing elements to that supply chain. So. What is happening more and more um, uh, in in an integrated sense is companies are beginning to look and, and users and energy purchasers are beginning to look at what's called the life cycle assessment, the LCA, you'll see that acronym frequently. Not just looking at, oh, I'm using a solar panel, so I'm not burning um, uh, natural gas and creating carbon in that way, but how much carbon was required to um, melt the silicon to make my panel, to mine the lithium that went into the battery. And so um, you can find various attempts at making this assessment, and we're still getting good at it. I mean, we still don't have have a very uniform way of doing this assessment. But roughly for every, um, let's say, kilowatt hour of electricity generated, um, things like wind and solar in particular are about an order of magnitude less carbon intensive than fossil fuels. So where fossil fuels might um, create um, a, uh, 400 uh, kilograms per kilowatt hour uh, generated, and I don't know that I have that number right. Um, uh, so solar might uh, only create about 40 kilograms per kilowatt hour generated. So so it is an enormous leap. Right. <laughs> um, and, and you also have to um, uh, remember that renewables like wind and solar don't consume An ongoing stream of resources as well. You know, once they're built they have a lifetime of several decades as opposed to, you know, until the next well has to be drilled. But yes, one of the biggest focuses I think that's important for earth scientists, which I'm a geologist, and all environmental scientists and engineers to think about as they're contemplating their future careers is how can I have an impact on improving the sustainability of the energy supply chain, no matter what it is? I mean, obviously we want to be cleaner and greener, mm-hmm. but in that, how can I make the lithium mines operate on, hundred uh, on, percent on solar and use less water and um, take up less land? And then how can I transport that more efficiently and how can I process it in a more environmentally friendly way before it goes into my lithium ion battery? that I'm going to use with my solar panel to generate and store all this clean energy. So I think we need to keep that whole supply chain in mind and and remember that that's our responsibility as environmental scientists.
0: Right, like basically um, we have to keep in mind that like there are are, things that go into making whatever you're gonna use for renewable energy.
1: Exactly, one of my clients has a great quote. Uh, She says, it all comes from the ground. And it's true, if we're Mm -hmm. not growing it, it comes from the earth. It's a mineral resource of some kind, whether it's a fuel resource or a rock or uh, a metal. So we have to be able to extract it and use it in an environmentally sustainable way.
0: Definitely. So like, um, I read a lot about how like, there's fusion energy like, um, that we might be able to use in somewhat like the near future. Like, what do you think about that?
1: Well, you're talking about something that I have no scientific background in. <laughs> so I that, unfortunately, that's not a question that I can give you a good answer on. Um, it's It sounds wonderful um, that, you know, of course, nuclear energy has its proponents as well. I have a colleague who is uh, very, Uh, actively working on cleaner and safer nuclear energy, which is Mm -hmm. completely carbon free. Um, So certainly there's some, uh, you know, so-called Hail Mary uh, things that could come out of out of the future and and, and into the present. Uh, Clean hydrogen is another one that um, is a remarkable energy resource if we can figure out how to produce it without carbon and Mm -hmm. how to store it safely. So I don't know anything about um fusion, but I know that there are a number of resources out there where we just haven't cracked the nut on risk and economics yet to make it feasible. But that's what we do best. So yeah. get our engineers working on it, right?
0: hmm Yeah. So like um going back to like fossil fuels, um obviously we know that it's bad because um we're we're putting carbon dioxide in the air, which is warming yeah. up our planet and stuff. But is there like um something that's like a clean coal? Is there any type of coal that's like that? And, how does, and if there is, how does that even work?
1: I think the best way to answer that question is just to go back to some very, very basic physics and chemistry. Um, you know, centuries ago, millennia ago, we got our energy from burning wood And wood, any kind of biomass, whether it's corn-based ethanol or wood or or, um, coal, which is the next step along the chain, but any kind of complex hydrocarbon like that um, is a molecule in which in with all of the hydrogen and carbons, which that's the bond we want to break to make energy, right? Mm -hmm. We also have a bunch of other impurities and we have a much higher ratio of carbon ions to hydrogen ions. So as we go from wood to coal to oil to natural gas to hydrogen, we get fewer and fewer carbon atoms and higher and higher energy efficiency from breaking that bond and fewer and fewer pollutants and littler and littler CO2. So what we have done over the last couple of millennia Is improve our clean use of fossil fuels by going from wood to coal to oil to natural gas and then to hydrogen. Mm -hmm. But it there's nothing fundamentally cleaner about coal than about natural gas. I mean you will always have a higher amount of CO2 coming off of burning coal than burning natural gas. So in some respects that's a little bit of a tricky name and and the reason it was adopted clean coal was because Um, A technology was developed to put scrubbers on coal burning power plants to try to recapture the CO2, but that doesn't make the coal any cleaner. That just adds an extra step to the process to try to capture the CO2 that's generated from the coal. So I don't think we can get away from the basic physics Mm -hmm. of all hydrocarbons, all the way from wood to hydrogen, that, or hydrogen doesn't have any carbon obviously, but all the way from wood to natural gas, that if you're gonna break that bond to get energy, you're going to generate some amount of of CO2 and it's going to be relative to where you are upon that hydrocarbon value chain.
0: Gotcha, so there's really nothing really like that, right?
1: Yeah, it's just a physical thing, right? There's a a certain uh, uh, physical chemical characteristic that you can't overcome.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, how do we get our energy right now? Because um, most of us usually um, are based off of fossil fuels. So I understand like what fossil fuels are, but like, how are we getting that energy?
1: That is a great question. And um, what's happening right now, as you and I are sitting here and over the course of the last three or four years, is that the changes are happening so rapidly that often we can't get the data to be able to assess it properly, but uh, so I'm just going to give you some sort of anecdotal stories. For example, now the state of Texas, which is one of the biggest fossil fossil fuel producers in the US, Mm -hmm. now gets 40% of its energy from renewable resources from wind and solar. That's you have seen, I'm sure, the predictions and the rate of growth of electric vehicles that are mm-hmm. coming on, especially in Europe, um, just accelerating uh, beyond our wildest dreams to where we think you know, we could be um, actually getting rid of internal combustion engines in Europe in, by 2050. So these changes are happening very rapidly. But there's another change that happens in, in concurrently with the energy transition, which is It's really easy to measure a barrel of oil. You take it out of the ground in West Texas. You have this volume of oil. You put it in a pipeline. Somebody measures it at either end. In the refinery, it gets measured. It gets measured coming out of the refinery, and then it gets measured when it goes into your car. as gasoline right at the pump. You watch the numbers tick. So physically, it's very easy to measure that energy usage. But when we have solar panels being installed in individual microgrids in population-dense communities in South Africa and India and Brazil and China um, that have no connection to a grid, and no tracking of how much energy they're generating. You know, how do we even estimate that? You know, we know that in Oklahoma and Texas, we're getting 40% of our energy from wind and solar because of our old grid system that measures it anyway. Mm -hmm. But in under-electrified or unelectrified parts of the world where distributed, clean, uh, renewable resources are being added at an incredibly rapid pace, you know, we, we can't even, we're struggling with how to measure that. Right. So it's a fascinating time because our kind of our old ways of keeping track of things don't work. So we don't really know how fast it's going, but it's it's going fast.
0: Definitely, yeah. And like um, even in like rural, uh, rural places, like um, in, in like you said in India and like Africa, they're they're using renewable energy, which is great. Mm-hmm. I I I I'm I whenever so my, we, my family lives in India. Um, and like, uh, we can sometimes like see people using like solar panels to power up their homes. And I think that's great, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the beauty of it is, I think the thing that is so fascinating to me, if you look at the history of, of energy usage in, in the, um, in, uh, across the globe and through time, and I'll get the numbers wrong, but something like um, 10% of the wealthiest people on earth produce almost 50% of the carbon, right? So Mm -hmm. this concept of energy inequity of, you know, not everyone getting access to the energy they need and a small percentage, you know, using all the energy and causing all the problems. The, The beautiful thing about renewable energy is that it has the potential to smooth that out, to provide better access to energy and better energy equity across communities, because, you know, you can go to a hardware store and buy a solar panel and an inverter and install that on your home with sort of plug and play technology at relatively low cost and and very quickly, whereas it takes 20 years and billions of dollars to drill a big well in the Gulf of Mexico and bring that oil and gas online and put it through a big infrastructure to process it. So the business models for renewable energy are a lot more accessible to people at all income levels and in all parts of the world than the business models for old forms of energy. So I have great optimism about Mm -hmm. the ability of renewable energy to sort of bring a a broader um, access and a a level of energy equity.
0: Right. And like, um, even like technology for like solar panels, like there are solar panels mm-hmm. on like backpacks and like in the future, they yep. might even be like solar panels on our phones and charge yes. them like as soon as oh, we go yeah. outside. Yeah. yeah. The technologies, and and just...
1: there are technologies looking at laminated solar for windows and, and yeah. Right. It's, yeah, it's it's very, um, it's, it's a, you know, one of the things that I struggle to kind of communicate to my colleagues in the fossil fuel business is it's really more like Silicon Valley pace of change because it's Mm -hmm. really technology that's being developed, not just um, a new drilling technology, a new mechanical thing. It's really a technology explosion. So it happens quickly and it happens rapidly and it it takes big leaps.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So like um, when you introduce um, the idea of renewable energy to like fossil fuel companies, how do they like react?
1: Well, you know again, companies are made of people and and so yeah. there, there there are as many reactions as you can um, as you can possibly imagine um, uh, you know there there is always um a tendency to be defensive and stand up for you know your technology and your um But I think more and more, again, because of this economic imperative, you know, people are looking at the price of a a Prius versus the price of a a Chevy pickup, and they're looking at um, their energy coming into their home, uh, you know, from uh, wind or solar being cheaper. Um, I think people are finally beginning to realize that um, there certainly is an anti-oil and gas emotional contingent out there. And I think mm. that's what's sort of created this us versus them piece. But I think people are beginning to realize that it's not just, um, oh, oil and gas is bad and, and should be punished. It's look, here's this new opportunity for something that's better and not just better um, for the planet, but better for business and, and fun to look into. So. It may take some time, but yeah, it is tough, I think, for particularly for my generation, for an older generation of of people who were sort of raised on oil and gas, Mm -hmm. it's tough to leave that behind. Um, But for um, people who are either just entering the business or who really thrive on change, as I do, as you can imagine, Um, it's really exciting to contemplate something new after all these years. So Mm -hmm. I think the reactions are, um, are completely all over the map. And that's kind of understandable when there's something this transformational going on.
0: Right. It's like, um, I have no analogy to compare this because it's like, it's huge, right? Like it is, it is. It really is a sea
1: change. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's great. So like, um, you seem very you 're very interested in this obviously um, yeah. so i 'd like to know how did you um, uh, how did you get pulled into this field of energy
1: um, well um, I, I was pulled into it originally on the fossil fuel side because I was a geologist who had worked on um, understanding how fluids move through rocks in my dissertation work, and so it was a beautiful match for the kinds of um, scientific work that I like to do and the problems that needed solving in the energy business. But, um, but a few years ago, the reason that I changed from working predominantly with oil and gas to working on future forms of energy was, um, really related to a lot of the ideas that you and I have talked about. I began to look at practices in the oil and gas business and realize that, you know, we were, um, we were not doing the most efficient things to provide energy. We were going after resources that were really, really difficult to extract. We were using processes that were not friendly to the environment, that, that were not improvements over past processes. We were sort of scraping around the edges trying to, to get the last bits. And, uh, and I, I began to think, you know, maybe there's something better out there to look at. Um, and then, as soon as I opened my eyes to what was going on with energy development, and I realized that, that so many things were happening, I sort of got caught by the um, you know the new ideas bug and the um, uh, new challenges and new opportunities. So that's kind of what drew me to it because um, I you know as geologists who work in the energy business, we are kind of explorers. We're always looking for New, new ideas, new opportunities, uh, new challenges, and, and that's what was appealing
0: uh, to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great, yeah. So um, I'd actually like to kind of like, uh, like we always say, leap to the next topic. Um, yeah, yeah um, so climate change, right? There's, there's um, a lot of this, we're, we're, still, we're still discussing it, even though it's coming at us in the face, right? Um, yeah. There are some people who uh, think that climate change is not man-made and it doesn't really affect us. But uh, that's not—I know that's not true, um, right? So, like, right. if you had the chance to talk to someone who thought this um, to try and change their mind, um, what would you say?
1: Well, um, I, first of all, I'll say, "Been there, done that." <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, as a matter of fact, that's you're describing a good part of my conversations with colleagues over the last uh, few years. Um, you know, let's let's be honest. There there are extremely reputable and capable uh, climate scientists and meteorologists and paleoclimatologists who have studied and and understand exactly the science behind uh, global anthropomorphic Anthropogenic climate change, and mm-hmm. it is um, real, documented, settled science. And I don't think that anyone with any um, real scientific investment would would um, would say otherwise. Right. Um, but you know, all human beings are both um, intellectual and emotional, and unfortunately. Um, there's an emotional appeal to those who particularly work in the fossil fuel industry or who are mm-hmm. um, resistant to change of any kind, um, who fall prey to, um, you know, the sort of uh, bad science of the climate denial movement. And um, and it is a tough conversation to have, particularly when you're having it with someone who is also a scientist, to be honest. Right. Um, and, and my approach to that is, first of all, to sort of reiterate what I just said to you, look, I'm not a paleoclimatologist, I'm not a meteorologist, I'm not a climate scientist, but I am a scientist and I can read their papers and I can see that they're well-documented and the data are there. And I can just walk outside and, and get the data for myself as well. Yeah. So I, I sort of make the data argument to start with, but then the other piece that is always um, a tripping point is, is it man-made or not? And my response to that is, who cares? Right. If we can fix it, <laughs> because you know the planet is not going to suffer, the planet's going to be around. The planet has survived multiple mass extinctions, climate fluctuations on the order of things that we can't even imagine or document in our lifetimes, but people won't survive. So if, if we as thinking creative human beings can create solutions that will arrest or reverse climate change and leave the planet more habitable for the human race, who cares why it happened? We can fix it. (laughs) So why not? (laughs) That's what we do. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's, that's the tact I take.
0: Right. Like, like you said, we're like, like a chip off the old wall. Yeah, right? we're not much, but we think we're a lot and we can fix it.
1: We can. Yeah, <laughs> we've, we've got a history of doing
0: that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, I hear a lot about like fracking and like how it's bad. So what really is this technique and how is it used?
1: Well, that's, a, that's another one of those science slash emotional things because fracking is, fracking is a, a short term for hydraulically fracturing the rock. So all mm-hmm. that means is, and we do this in clean energy projects too, in geothermal projects, we use water like a hammer under high pressure to break rock. And it's, a very, it's a been around in the, in the drilling business for 50, 60, 70 years. Um, we pump water into the ground and use it to smash the rock and create fractures. In the geothermal business, it allows hot fluids to flow more rapidly and create more geothermal industry in, in, energy, which is a good thing, right? Because um, geothermal is clean and, and produces no, no carbon. Um, in oil and gas, fracking, hydraulically fracturing the rocks, is used also to open up fractures and to make oil and gas flow more rapidly through the rock and to the surface. So what fracking does is it's an enabling technology. It makes more oil and gas come out of the ground faster. That's that's all it does, right? Mm-hmm. Now the problem is, um, making more oil and gas come out of the ground faster is not necessarily a good thing these days, right? Right. (laughs) So it's great when we can use it to access natural gas resources to replace oil until we can get to a cleaner energy future because natural gas is cleaner than oil, Mm -hmm. but it's not so great when we're using it to get, um, you know, heavy oil out of the ground, which is very carbon intensive. So the other piece to fracking, in addition to being a scientifically defined technology that helps us uh, access either geothermal or oil and gas, um, it's also become this catch all phrase for anything to do with hydrocarbon extraction, right? Right. Because the process of fracking is the most visible thing. If you've got a gas well on your property in Western uh, uh, Pennsylvania, um, you don't see anything when they drill it, but a rig that's there for a short time, and then there's just a hole in the ground with some pipes around it. Mm-hmm. But when that well gets fracked, thirty sand trucks pull up, five pumper trucks all of a sudden, there are you know fifty workers in jumpsuits all working on fracking this well. It's this big visible process so the 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 layperson now says anything to do with oil and gas, whether it's drilling the well, completing the well, producing the oil and gas, it's all fracking, and it's all bad. And to some degree, they're right, extracting oil and gas makes carbon, not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of fracking moniker moniker has become uh, an overall pejorative term. Um, And, you know, it's a, I hate to, I hate to hide behind this, but it really is a political thing in the sense that, It's become a, you know, you're either for or you're against fracking. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, um, like all processes, it can be done safely. Like all processes, it can result in risk and disastrous consequences. But like all things to do with the hydrocarbon industry, um, we need to do it as safely as we can for as long as we need it and then move beyond that to better, more efficient, more affordable forms of energy that are cleaner and greener.
0: Right. So, like, people are either on, like, the black or the white side, but, like, exactly. the gray.
1: Exactly. And and we also need to recognize what fracking really represents, which is just a technology applied to oil and gas, and it's really the oil and gas extraction that we need to be worried about,
0: mm-hmm. not
1: the fracking per se, but fracking has become the name of everything.
0: So. Yeah. So, like, um, what would another technique that um, the oil and gas companies, what, what could they, what else could they use other than like fracking um, to get what they need to get out in like a more environmentally friendly way? Is there another way like that?
1: Um, no, I, there really isn't. I mean, that, that it's a, it's a fairly unique process and the, um, the, the piece of it that has um, the 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 applica- as I said fracking has been done right. for a hundred years but what's happened now is again back to that um, changes in oil and gas that I talked about earlier mm-hmm. now we are we are. You know, instead of producing reservoirs that flow freely and and oil and gas is easy to get out of the ground, now we're truly scraping the bottom of the barrel in reservoirs that are very difficult to get the oil and gas out of. So that's why being able to fracture the rock is important and critical to be able to get those last little bits out. So it's really more a, a reflection of the fact that we're in a very mature industry in oil and gas, which is fine because. We have an energy replacement, <laughs> and we'll we'll get that we'll get that coming soon
0: yeah, so um during like this uh covid nineteen time we've been seeing like lots of environmental changes like um there's like changes in the air because everyone's at home, and like um because because we're not putting as much carbon in the air right so like I think our nation was able to experience a greener life, per se. Right? Like, yeah. Um, we were we were, we were able to like understand. Okay, well, I don't actually need to go to work. Um, it, I don't have to drive to work every like every day because we can finish the same things like at home. So, like, do you think we'll like be able to continue this greener life, or like, um, do you think we'll just like snap right back into what we were doing before?
1: You know that that is that really is the question of the day isn't it um
0: yeah
1: and and uh i i i began in, in the early days of the pandemic i i sort of thought of this as kind of a great unplanned experiment right you know sort of a, an imposed <laughs> Uh, experiment on what would happen if we did cut back our our hydrocarbon usage instantaneously and ir- irrevocably, right? Yeah, um, I, I'm not so sure uh, that we can see far ahead enough in this in this pandemic to really know what will happen because, you know, as we're seeing in this country we're still getting um, uh, surges in our current wave of the pandemic to the point where we may actually go even further into less carbon usage. But we we did see a big spring back when businesses started to open up. We saw carbon usage really multiply again. Mm -hmm. Um, So those kinds of backs and forths, it's going to be really tough to, to try to predict are we gonna spring back or are we gonna stay low? Um, because we really don't know what the, the business and, and public health environment is gonna dictate on that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but um, one thing that even just a few weeks of pandemic isolation, uh, I think, did to our culture is we realized we do not have to fly to Houston for a one-day business meeting. We do not need to fly around the world to spend three days in a closed conference room listening to 20-minute PowerPoint presentations when we can do that virtually on Zoom, right? (laughs) So there are certain things, I think, uh, but, but we also now value much more the ability Um, You know, to fly to California to see relatives, which we can't do now either. So Mm -hmm. I think we will see much more of a cultural change as to how we choose to use our carbon. You know, we now know, like you say, we don't have to go back to work. Mm -hmm. But will we then make the choice, I'm going to work for this company because they'll let me work from home. Instead of working for that company, they'll pay me more, but they make me go into work. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that I think are are going to be very telling in the coming weeks and months and even years are the choices we make as a result of this sort of enforced shutdown. You know, we right. have to do without for weeks, months, years, however long it's going to be. Mm-hmm. We're going to make different choices on the other side. And now we've at least seen what we can do, what we're capable of doing.
0: Right. Well, um, I'm not saying that COVID's like a good thing, but I think it's like a wake-up call. I, I guess like a it's little a, wake-up call for us, right? It's, like,
1: it's a, it's a, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, whoa, look what could happen. Yeah. yeah. And And there is opportunity in sort of taking a, taking a break and and looking Mm -hmm. around there's opportunity not just to rebuild the same old bad world (laughs) but to solve problems differently in a new world so yeah yeah
0: i used to previously think that like if like like the usage of our like carbon dioxide is like a car right and there's like a brick wall which is kind of like um i guess when we stop using carbon i I guess and like and like as soon as we reach that point i feel like like what we're gonna like if we just stop using carbonate like one second i used to think that the the, like everything would just like be weird i don't know like
1: yeah yeah and and no, it's there's a lot of elasticity in it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i yeah i agree with you i agree with you it is surprising oh my goodness we can do this (laughs) yeah yeah
0: it's more like driving yourself into like cookie dough right and just like yeah (laughs) everything's fine (laughs) yeah i like it Yeah. yeah um But also, um, I was, like, thinking, like, uh, climate change actually, like, what I meant by saying, like, it's a wake-up call, I think climate change is actually causing more illnesses to appear, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, due to, like, pests, more pests, like, like, things like that, I'm, I'm not knowledgeable in that but like I know a little bit about that so there's that so I think that that was also what I said like a wake-up call right?
1: It is it is and and you know I I, it would be dreadful to think that something as as horrendous as COVID-19 is required to make us sit up and take notice but as our scientists you know we do know that um, it's it's not just oh my goodness it's hotter and so um you know, we're spending more on electricity because it's two degrees hotter in the summer. Everything changes, agricultural zones change, ocean currents change, ice pathways change. You know, the the, the ecosystem is so interdependent that it's not just global warming, it's a rearrangement of global patterns on a grand scale. So mm-hmm. the real question to me is, How do we use this experiment and the results we've observed in this experiment to do better going forward? You know, are we, and I I know that that scientists worldwide, particularly those at the IPCC, are looking at those things to say, okay, now that we know this, how do we do this differently? We can learn from this time.
0: Definitely. Yeah. So like, um, uh, I'd like to ask, like, I think we are using like fossil fuels as like, um, like an addiction, right? Like it's like coffee, like you can't get enough of it. <laughs> so like, why are fossil fuels so hard for us to like, just stop? Like, like I, like, I know you said like, um, uh, it's because like we have like emotional impact with that and like, but what else do you think?
1: Well, you know, <laughs> Energy, let's let's think of it as energy and and then the resource behind it. Um, We have been gradually using more and more energy per capita. Now that hasn't been very equitably distributed, but on a global basis, on a per person basis, our energy usage has steadily increased over decades and millennia. Mm -hmm. And along with that increased use of energy comes higher quality of life, better health, um, uh, higher productivity, more leisure time, all of the good things, the ability to produce art, um, uh, books, culture. So energy usage per se is a great enabler or can be a great enabler to social improvement. Mm The problem is that along with that um, increase in energy usage per capita, the kind of energy we were using was putting out more and more CO2 per capita. So we, you know, we can't simply, I mean, it's not that we're addicted to fossil fuels. It's that we have used fossil fuels to improve our lifestyle at a cost. And mm-hmm. we are now having to figure out how to um, reduce that cost by substituting in other fuels. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I don't think that we um, are are in the position of wanting to strip away all of our advances in healthcare, strip away all of our advances in. Um, uh, uh, social amenities or or cultural amenities or business advancements or technology, you know, the technology that we're using for this communication. We don't want to 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 pull the energy rug out from under all of that. What we need to do is figure out a way to use energy that has less cost to the environment and to and to us as a society. So um I think that was the wrong I'm not a fan of the addicted to fossil fuels uh motif i think we are addicted to energy and it's a good addiction it's it's um it's not like coffee it's like fruit and vegetables yeah. but uh we need to we need to stop eating twinkies and start eating
0: fruit and <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that was that was um that was not the right yeah. terminology to use no no um, i know but
1: it's it's a terminology that's commonly used and i think we need to fully appreciate that energy itself is not the problem it's it's
0: how we how we getting it. access yeah. it right yeah so um, just as like, I have a couple questions to like wrap this up. So like, um, what advice would you give uh, young, young people or just anyone um, who's leaning towards uh, the field you're working in and what would you need to learn in order to pursue this field?
1: Um, if, if you're interested in earth sciences or engineering in the energy business, um, I think that um, well, like any tech field, um, you know, basic physics, chemistry, math, uh, whatever science you particularly specialize in, be it biology, chemistry, whatever, um, all of those sort of underlying fundamental credentials are critical. But mm. what distinguishes for me a career on the energy side of things is that you also need to be able to sort of pull in all the disparate pieces of market and culture and economics and politics and um, societal um, social justice issues you need to not just you don't need to be an expert in all of those things but you need to appreciate the impact and the interwoven nature of all of those things on the energy business and to me that's also one of the big rewards of it right that um it's not just you know building a widget in a box or creating a bank derivative it, it's something that really knits our society together into the fabric of life. And so mm-hmm. so so that's both a, um, uh, something you need to be willing and open to learning, but you also need to be interested in it. Um, <clears throat> as, a, as a woman or a girl or a, a, a female um, coming into this business and particularly into the STEM field and particularly into earth sciences where we are woefully behind in all issues related to uh, diversity and gender inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that conversations like you and I are having, one-on-one relationships with other women in the field, um, mm-hmm. with mentors, with with people who are willing to just kick ideas around. You know, uh, to um, to tell you their stories. Um, right. I, c- I can't tell you how important it is to both listen to other people's stories and share your own because that's how we learn, right? That's how we learn about interpersonal things. So um, that's the advice I would give any person entering this field is be damn good at what you do, you know, be technically really excellent, um, but also have this ability to sort of soak in all the things that don't have to do with science and those interpersonal connections with people who are your mentors um, uh, really, or, and, and some of my mentors now, because of the way the tables are turned, are 30-somethings who are so far ahead leading the charge on the, on the clean energy side that I'm just running to catch up. So, I mean, that, that kind of goes both ways. But having those interpersonal relationships where you're not afraid to go to someone and ask for help and tell them your story and listen to theirs. Right. Really important.
0: Yeah. And my last question is, um, Scientists, like you have like a chance in making the world better, right like um, so I'd like to know what are like some green things that you do, and what are some green things that other people can do as well?
1: Well, you know i I love the way you said that because um, when I look at truly great scientists, you know, people whose uh, contributions have changed the world, they're not just scientists they're also. Yeah human. They're also humble. They're also humane. You know, they have compassion. They have, they want to make the world a better place. So, um, I think, um, for for me personally, you know, I'm just a a one little geologist in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I have a very small business and I impact a a very small circle, but, um, for me, it's a, it's a one-to-one thing. If I can, help one person make a connection to someone who might help them find a job in the area they want, or if I can um, put the guys at Habitat for Humanity in touch with some friends of mine who are trying to start a solar business and they can put solar on every Habitat house in, in, in Tulsa, you know, that's something that, mm-hmm. you know, it's a small thing, but it's a, but it's a, a, a critical impact to, to the people that it, that it affects. Right. So I think as a scientist, you know if you're if you're Paul Romer who got the Nobel Prize in Economics and you can um, influence the way New York City reopens after the pandemic, wow, you know <laughs> that's great, but you're doing that in the same way that that I'm uh helping one person get a job in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because you care about what happens to other people, not because you're the world's best scientist, so I think that's the most important thing,
0: mhm-. Well, um, thank you so much for coming here. And I'm really grateful that scientists like you are able to like, um, are, are willing to like share their knowledge with the world. Yeah.
1: Owens.
0: Yeah. So um, just a reminder, we've been speaking to Dr. Edith Newton-Wilson, and uh, thank you so much for joining me. Um, so, so we, uh, Thank you so much for joining me here. So, uh, and sharing your thoughts about climate change, fossil fuels, renewable energy, and stuff like that. Um, I I've, appre- I've, I've really appreciated it. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, Saranya, it's been my pleasure. And thank you for asking me. And I am just, I, I look at you and I see the future and I can't wait until it gets here. So <laughs> thank you for doing this.
0: Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. If you enjoyed this thrilling episode, be sure to subscribe to be notified when a new episode is posted. Don't forget to share women in environmental science with your friends and family so they can learn more about the problems that are being solved in the science industry. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned about the work researchers are doing in this field. This is Serenia signing off. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.